everyone. Welcome back to But What Will People Say? I'm your host, Disha Mazeppa, and this is a South Asian interracial relationship and lifestyle podcast. Welcome back for another episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It's been a minute. I hope you all had a wonderful summer. I hope you got some time to relax and have a grand old time. And we're here in the fall, and I'm so excited to be back. Lots of new faces here in this neighborhood. So if you recently discovered, but what will people say? Welcome. And if you have been enjoying the show, make sure you leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. Tell me what you love about the show. I love to hear from y'all. The other thing is if you've been enjoying the show at any point, make sure you share it on social media and tag me. Word of mouth has always been the best biggest resource for me to grow this show. The more people you tell, the more people you share it with, the bigger this family gets to grow. And it has been a fun journey all around. And if you really, really like hearing my voice, I have another podcast called Prime and Prejudice. And it's a South Asian TV watch along podcast. We talk about shows with my friend Sidney that we've been watching and most of them highlight South Asian representation, things like Never Have I Ever and Bridgerton season two and Wedding Season. We're having new episodes later this week on Prime and Prejudice and we're also going to start including trivia episodes. So if you really love shows like Never Have I Ever, stay tuned. I feel like a car ride with a little trivia is just a recipe for a good time. Um, excited to be back. Lots and lots of cool guests lined up for y'all. And one of those guests is here with me today. Her name is Dr. Ranjan Ravalia, and she is better known as the New England Priest. She is a Hindu priestess, and she does all kinds of interracial and interfaith weddings, as well as different region ceremonies being combined and also provides like general services that a Hindu priest would, such as for housewarmings and such. And all of her contact info is down below. But we had such a fun conversation and I had asked some of the listeners what they wanted me to ask if I had a Hindu priest on. And so we got into everything from what's against your religion, how to convert to Hinduism, some of the wedding ceremony bits, things like period stigmas and living together before you're married and just all of the things. She is amazing. I hope you listen to it. I hope all of our parents listen to it. Um, she is probably my favorite auntie I've ever talked to. She's so nice. Um, and I highly, highly recommend her as well. She's pretty fantastic. And so without further ado, here is Dr. Ranjan Ravalia. Hi, everybody. We're here with Ranjan. She is better known as the New England priest, and you are a Hindu priestess. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So my, as uh, you just said, my name is Ranjan Ravalia. I am an environmental scientist by profession. Uh, in my earlier life, um, because of pandemic, uh, the projects that I used to do got uh, sort of delayed and delayed and delayed. And uh, so uh, I had, uh, I was close to retirement. My kids were having babies. So I decided to retire. Um, but in, uh, 
a few years ago, my nephew asked me to officiate his wedding. So I said, uh, I don't know anything about a wedding. So I went to India, stayed at an ashram for a month and a half and learned the rituals. And uh, the reason it was easier for me to learn is because I can uh, read and write Sanskrit. I can speak fluent Hindi. I can speak fluent Gujarati and, of course, uh, the English language. So uh, once I uh, officiated his wedding, a couple of my friends said, oh, we don't have a priest. Uh, Can you do ours? So that's how it all got started. Amazing. And since then, you've officiated quite a few weddings. And the reason I came across your profile was you do interracial weddings, which like myself, finding a priest for an interracial or interfaith wedding can be a little bit tricky depending on the priest or priestess and their beliefs and the religion. Um, But that is something that you do. So tell us a little bit about that and what made you want to do that. So what happened was that uh, my nephew definitely married uh, an English woman and uh, he didn't want a priest who didn't understand them. He didn't want a priest who would just come and, you know, go through the motions of getting them married and they wouldn't understand and neither would uh, his wife. So then uh, we tried to figure out how to maneuver all that. We had a learning session with her parents and uh, made everyone comfortable. And since then, my majority of my weddings are interfaith or uh, interregional in terms of like if there are both the couples are from India, they are from different parts of India. So that way, it is tough uh, for the rituals to mash also. So uh, I try and work with the couple and uh, customize what they believe in. Over and over again, I have encountered the phrase, whatever the priest or their uh, availability is, they believe that it doesn't match their value. Yes. So, so that that is how I started, uh, uh, you know, encountering issues with the, uh, the couple's beliefs. And uh, uh, then I said, okay, we need to do something about this. And if we want uh, uh, Hindu religion per se, or even the customs to be followed or to be understood. Uh, so that is my main uh, theme of how to incorporate uh, different belief system. Amazing. That is definitely what so many of my listeners I know have struggled with and I struggled with when I got married was even something as simple as finding someone who spoke English and could translate some of Mm -hmm. the ceremonies and um, let alone someone who, like you said, their values didn't match and some people were unwilling to officiate the wedding because there were different religions and customs involved. Um, In terms of Hinduism, where does it stand on like its actual beliefs of like an interfaith or intercultural wedding? So if you really uh, look into different uh, religions, 
I have come across and I have read many places that uh, 90 to 95% of all the religions uh, have so much common that, that only if we are fighting about 5% differences, which is statistically ridiculous because 5% doesn't make up anything. Absolutely. You know? So if that is the case, then what are we fighting about? You know, when you, I did, uh, um, I did a Jewish wedding this past month uh, and a Hindu wedding together. So they wanted uh, the ceremony to be mashed, not to, to be separate. You know, sometimes the couple say, okay, we'll have... Uh, Jewish ceremony one day and uh, Hindu ceremony the next. But they didn't want to do that. So they wanted to mash everything in one ceremony. And so what we did together is uh, identify uh, steps from both the uh, traditions of wedding. And one thing I want to emphasize is that it's not a religious ceremony. Marriage is not a religion. It is a traditional ceremony. Depends on what traditions you have within your community, within your belief system. That is how the weddings are conducted. So when you uh, look at the traditions in Jewish as well as in Indian, there are so many, and I mean so many similarities, that it boggled our mind. And it uh, felt like, you know, Everything was the same. Uh, they circle around each other seven times in the Jewish uh, ceremony, whereas we circle seven times around the fire. <coughs> and then uh, we take seven steps together. They break the glass at the, at the end of the ceremony and we break the pot, like the clay pot, at the beginning of the ceremony. We, uh, uh, in both the ceremonies, they have, uh, the groom breaks it. But when we looked at uh, what the value system the couple believed in, we felt that maybe the beginning uh, bride should uh, do the clay pot and the groom should do the uh, glass breaking at the end of the ceremony. So we found a lot of similarities. And if you... If you look at even Christian uh, or Western ceremonies, they say tying of the knot. Tying of the knot is a simple uh, concept in Hindu ceremony. You tie the dupatta of both uh, the bride and the groom, and that makes you one. So there are important aspects that are very, very common. So to me, it's just not a, a deal breaker for anything. You know, it's just a part of uh, the tradition that one person follows versus the other. And that's a really good clarification that you made that the difference isn't, it's not a religious thing. It's a cultural tradition. And right. for so many of us, we weren't raised with that difference. It was our religion and our culture were pretty much considered the same. And then with that, you're sort of raised with certain expectations just being said that like Hinduism or our religion is the reason you can't do this or you, this is why we do this kind of thing. Um, but before we get into that, can you just 
break down the aspects of a Hindu wedding, like the main parts? So uh, um, the main aspects is welcoming of the groom. Uh, then uh, a lot of times uh, the parents do the kanyadan, which a lot of young women do not want it uh, in the you know present times. I have come up with a, a different ceremony instead of uh, kanyadan. I do paraspar sammati. So paraspar, if you understand, is mutual. Sammati meaning agree. So we both mutually agree to get married. It's not my parents are giving me away, which it used to be before. So, uh, and then uh, it is the Agni Puja, main aspect. And then uh, it is the Fera. And then the seven steps. And then the celebration and Ashirwad. So those are the main Vedic steps that uh, I prescribe to. And uh, if uh, there is a time constraint because of a venue or something, we will fudge a few, you know, steps here and there and not do certain things or do it ahead of time, you know. So uh, Ganesh Puja a lot of times is done ahead of time. Ganesh Puja is a religious aspect that I can uh, agree to. But the actual wedding ceremony is not uh, a religious ceremony. The only religious aspect of the wedding is the fact that we worship elements, which is being done in all the older religions, like Babylonians worshipped elements, the Egyptians worshipped elements, and uh, even the Hindus worship uh, elements. So five elements, when you do that, Agni is part of that. Uh, five elements. So uh, there is no gods or goddesses uh, that are being uh, prayed to during the wedding ceremony. So those are some of the important aspects I uh, sort of familiarize the couple with, and then they make a de decision on what they want. That's awesome. Um, one thing you also pointed out before was because these are cultural traditions, you also do like interregional weddings, which in mm -hmm. India I know is also considered unusual to sort of step outside of your own state almost. Yeah, right. Every state has its own language and cultural traditions. So even though there's tons of different religions in, in India, even if the bride and the groom are Hindu, they still have very different traditions for a marriage and I've you know gotten to see some of them and you can almost very distinctly tell who comes from which state or which region right based on so many things besides just the steps of their wedding but the way they dress and the language they speak and suddenly mm -hmm. you realize like Hinduism might be the overarching familiar part of all of this but otherwise there's very different aspects to it Right. And when uh, somebody, uh, when there's an interfaith wedding, they sometimes parents are very uh, concerned that they might be asked to pray uh, God or goddess uh, that they don't want to. Because uh, there are some faiths that don't uh, prescribe to the fact that you can uh, pray to another God. Right. So 
for Jewish uh, uh, naming uh, Jesus Christ is the bigger problem, right? Uh, there and then there are some Christians who believe they don't want to pray to another God except for Jesus. So I have encountered those things, and I tell them that uh, there are uh, philosophy. Hinduism is not a religion; it is a philosophy of how to conduct yourself. There are uh, shlokas that describe uh, what is important to be a human being. And there are, uh, you know, steps that uh, tell you how to be healthy and uh, happy in terms of your mental health. So there are more about uh, uh, spiritual and philosophical aspects in Hinduism than the gods and goddesses. We, uh, when you look at, when you boil down to it, it is a philosophy, not a religion. Yeah, and it's very much... um you could almost call it like a lifestyle. Right. Right. There's, like you said, there's so many things that describe the ways that you should live. Um, when it comes to interfaith weddings, like you said, lots of parents have concerns just in general. True. One thing we hear a lot is that it's somehow against your religion to marry outside of it. Right. Is, or the topic of converting comes up and, like you said, Hinduism, you consider it less of a religion than a spiritual yeah. philosophy. Are there actual rules or anything in the scriptures that say like what is and isn't allowed in that aspect? I would say no, only because uh, there are examples of every uh, contradictions in Hindu uh, mythology and scriptures and stories where, um, you know, if you know what Ardhangini, Ardhanarishwar means, meaning that uh, a person is half uh, woman and half man. Ardhanarishwar, right? Mm -hmm. So what does it mean that every person has both the traits being a a uh, woman and a man. The strength comes from whenever you need it. So there are examples of uh, every contradiction. And that is what I call contradictions is because you believe that, oh, this should not be done. And when you look at the scriptures, oh, somebody has already done it thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. So those contradictions are really play, plays out when you try to impress upon uh, one uh, belief. Is there a, and this is a very common question, I never know the answer, is there a way to convert to Hinduism? Is there a ceremony for that or a process or is it just like you decide? That's what I tell people. I'm like, you just decide. So, uh, so you practice. You practice Hinduism. You do not convert. Okay. There are no conversion uh, uh, camps going on in India because if you bo if you are born in a Hindu family, you are born a Hindu. It's your freedom to do however you want to practice your Hindu philosophy and your faith or your beliefs. How you uh, 
uh, want to uh, how you want to ex- sort of you know enrich yourself. So I have read. Uh, uh, I mean, all Hindus believe that uh, uh, we are uh, going to be reincarnated, right? We believe in reincarnation. So that doesn't mean that uh, you are a human being today. You are going to be based on your karma. You will be a human again. You could be anything based on your karma. So to be to reach that nirvana, I have read that uh, however many leaves there are on the tree, those many numbers of incarnations you take until you improve yourself with each and every incarnation that will bring you to the moksha or the nirvana. What they say, what we say. Do you? Uh, yeah. Is, uh, so you if that makes, what that means a little bit. Right. So if that makes any sense, that means uh, uh, there is room for improvement in every life form. Every life form. And that incremental improvement is going to make you a better human being. Amazing. Um, And so along with that whole lifestyle and improving yourself as a person, other things that come up a lot in Hinduism and this varies very much, is eating habits. Um, Whether you're vegetarian or you're not vegetarian or you only eat like chicken and seafood. I mean, every sort of which way has been described as like, this is what we choose to practice. This is what we don't. This is what is supposedly what you're supposed to do. Can you give us a little breakdown of that? So I would, uh, the, the funniest thing is that if you go to West Bengal, fish is allowed for Hindus, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So when you go to Bengal, uh, fish is allowed. Why? Because it is abundant. You go to the river, you fish and you eat and you sustain yourself. You, um, so that is one example that I give all the time that uh, there is no, the vegetarianism is the belief system is that there are, you know, foods that you eat makes you who you are, right? So uh, being a, a tamasi or a rajasi or uh, food, rich foods, and, uh, you know, if you are consuming life, then uh, it affects your uh, temperament more than anything else that is how it is believed and especially the cow aspect that we all believe is that because the our scriptures have said that uh, it provides everything you need milk for the enrichment of a human body it gives you when the cow dies uh, you get the skin and you can protect yourself from the elements you can see that uh, Lord Shiva uh, is, uh, you know, sitting on a uh, on a skin of a tiger, right? Mm-hmm. So why why is he doing that? And we have examples of uh, uh, gods and I mean goddesses sitting on Siha, like lion. Why? Yeah. So there are examples. So you say this cannot be, should not be done, right? 
But then you immediately look into it and you find examples to the contrary. Right. And that's what kind of pushed, I was not raised vegetarian. Um, but part of where I became less fussed about people's eating habits and what you can and can't eat, especially when it came to being vegetarian, was I did look into it. I was like on this search of like, I just don't get it. Like every Indian person or every Hindu person, I should say, I know they all have like their own like choices that they've made about their, you know, dietary consumption. And I've like you, I found all of those contradictions and I was like, it's just a choice. Exactly. Like, you can decide what you want to do and what's best for you. And like, I think for me where Hinduism has always sort of resonated is this, like you mentioned before, the freedom to choose what works for you and what serves you and brings you the most in life. And that it is just like a, a more of a philosophy and a guidance for life and less of like, these are the rules, even though so many of our parents portrayed everything as a rule. No, and I think uh, uh, the the best way to describe Hinduism is uh, uh, is to pick and choose aspects that work for you, and I mean you in person. Doesn't matter uh, how uh, anybody else sees it, mm-hmm. and that freedom to choose is what Hinduism is based on. Because we believe if you choose to eat uh, something that I don't eat, that means that maybe if I feel that uh, you shouldn't eat, maybe in some another life form, you will choose something different, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that would be, uh, I would consider that as an improvement for you. Or um, uh, it is your belief system and i believe in karma the most whatever you do there is no you should not hurt anyone mm-hmm. that is the biggest philosophy i take out of uh, hinduism is that what goes around comes around right yeah yeah what so, you put out into the world right so if you believe that uh, you believe in karma then i want to have my karma not come back to me. Yeah. So absolutely. that is the life lesson I uh, walk on. And I uh, want uh, even my children to realize that, that uh, you don't want to be uh, a person who has uh, any kind of regret of ill feelings. Not regret on bigger aspects, even on the smallest of the small. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. That meaning that means there is that particular action, there is room for improvement, right? Another question I had, because you kind of mentioned it before that, like, if you go to West Bengal, fish is considered something that you should be eating. And for me, the thing with religion has always been, uh, I went to school for like social sciences, there's a lot of anthropology involved. And so there's a lot of just like the real roots of religion and where these like lifestyles and rules for all of them came from. And that like there was a time where religious figures were the people in power. Like there was no separation of church and state. And so it wasn't a decree of God so much as the people in power saying like, right now you shouldn't eat this because there's a disease going around or right here we eat this because we need our population to survive or 
you know, but it would be said as like, you know, God or whatever you believed in decreed that this is what you do or don't do. Exactly. And I think it is the, uh, the what you mentioned is the fact that uh, people in power made decisions, you know, and uh, they imposed those decisions on the general public. And it happens even today, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, the, nothing has changed uh, because the humanity hasn't changed. So uh, the only thing we want to do is be aware of the fact that these are all man-made rules and you are allowed to think and, uh, you know, act uh, in the best interest uh, uh, for you and your family and your community as a whole. Yeah, so, and I think I- we like to at least remind people of that. Um, You know, sometimes I have to remind my own parents. I'm like, we just made this up. You can also make up new stuff. Like we haven't updated the software in a while, you know? And one of those things that feels like hasn't been updated is the idea of being on your period and not being allowed to go to the mandir or temple because it's unclean. And for me, in the digging that I have done, it just seems like, the people in power were like, this is unsanitary. The temple is a public place where people gather. So when you're on it, maybe don't go because we didn't have sanitary options, right? There were no tampons or pads or, you know, whatever back in the day. Whereas now it seems like one of those archaic things that has just been carried through. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you, you think? You are not wrong. I have never observed that rule. I am 68 years old. I told myself, if I'm a woman and if I want to go to the temple, I am going to go. Whether I'm on my menstruation cycle or not, I'm going because there are only certain opportunities when I was younger. Not every day. Temples were not open every day. Mm -hmm. Right? So if there is, if the temple is open uh, during my menstrual cycle, I will go. Then nobody has ever told me that uh, don't go. And uh, I have not listened even when they've told me. Let's put it this way. We appreciate that. Huh? We appreciate that. That's the energy we want around here. I know. And my my mother was, my mother and my grandfather, grandmother, both were very, very compromising uh, in terms of certain things. And uh, in old days, my mother would be sitting out for four days and uh, uh, not uh, be allowed to come in the kitchen, not be allowed to just do manual work, you know. And uh, it was uh, as a technique to suppress. Yeah. And I I believe that, that uh, it was one of those things that you... uh, uh, use to cut uh, half the population, right? We've been at fifty-one percent in the world, and if everybody followed that, fifty-one percent of women would not uh, would be for four days completely, Im, uh, you know, immobile, or will not be able to work or take yeah. care of children. You know, the the period stigma. I feel like that is somewhere. I feel very strongly has been a way to keep women from really moving forward, especially there are parts of India where girls don't even finish high school. Yeah, because, because of that. Yeah, or they miss school <laughs> and then they don't end up graduating. And 
They're not given access to sanitary products. And it has always felt like this sort of systemic agenda to make sure we don't end up in... Yeah. You cannot compete with men at that point, right? Because uh, if you haven't gone to high school, your peers... uh, from the other gender have all go, gone completed high school and gone for further studies, you know, and this woman is now going to just get re- married and raise children and do right. labor. And made to feel ashamed about a process yeah. that if you didn't go through, you would also be an outcast because they would have a problem with you not being able to have children or have a harder time having children. So right. the whole thing is kind of aggravating. And as a kid was very much, taught to like be more compromising you can't go to the mandir if it was navratri it was missing garba for those days which was like <laughs> for me devastating um even at my wedding like this whole fuss about like you can't be on your period you can't be on your period i mean to go so as far as to like and this is too much information but like going to the gynecologist and like my mom would just be like they give you something so you don't get your period and i literally didn't know what she meant and then i realized it was birth control but she like wouldn't just say that out loud and i got to the office it was embarrassing because i'm like trying to explain this like backwards supposed <laughs> religious idea to my doctor which was uncomfortable and she was like um we can give you birth control I'm like is that what my mom's talking about yes um, I, the whole thing was horrifically embarrassing no but like you know it like even today and this was in like 2019 when I got married and it was like you you really think this is something like you're gonna cancel a wedding you know how much money we spent on this you're gonna cancel the wedding over if I get my period and you're not really sure if it's gonna happen like there were a lot of moments. I think wedding planning was really the time where I started questioning, like, how much of this is like "quote unquote" religion, and how much of this is just like y- you just gotta let it go. Yeah, a lot of things just let go. But I think uh, <clears throat> the the period part. My sister is a OBGY, uh, and so uh, all the girls get. Uh, as you know, the wedding comes around, she'll just hand it out <laughs> and she'll say, uh, just take care of it. Oh my God. The only reason is that not that she doesn't, but she wants you to have a good time because then otherwise right. you are so distracted, yeah. distracted with, uh, you know, your period, you are thinking about your, you know, uh, tampons or whatever. You know, so she would just give it to them and just uh, take it, please. So you will have a good time, you know. Yeah. So (laughs) that's the only reason she would give it. Absolutely. And then going on from there, the other topics some of the listeners had questions about were like the LGBTQ community, like being gay or lesbian or any of it um, and falling into that category where Hinduism I guess it's stance on it because again, another topic that has been taught by our parents to us as like, it's quote unquote against our religion, but I just don't buy it. There is nothing to be bought because uh, whatever they are selling is not worth it. It's not worth it at all. Uh, I did uh, 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 same sex couples wedding last year. Amazing. And and uh, uh, the worst part of the whole situation was that their priest 
canceled two months before. And uh, they were so petrified, who is going to conduct the wedding? For some reason, his sister contacted me from online, whatever, and she said, please, can you do this? I said, yeah, I have been waiting for someone to call me to do this. And uh, so she says to me, please talk to my brother. So when I talked to them, they told me that, please do not bring the issue of priest in front of my parents because they were so devastated that uh, I don't want uh, them to be upset about priest being so rigid and all that. I said, done. There is no big deal about, you know, I don't believe in it. And uh, there is nothing to be, you know, ashamed of. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are no scriptures. Obviously, there are shlokas that say a girl and a boy and all that because we have written it, right? But there are no prescriptive uh, lines that say this cannot happen. Yeah. You know, everybody has translated however they want, but when you look at it, you know, there are no prescriptions of, uh, okay, a man cannot get married to a man. or But uh, then when you look at, uh, you know, a lot of ashrams, um, there are examples of, you know, people living together, comm- communal living. How did that happen? Yeah. You know? So I, I, there are things that I don't believe in and I don't prescribe to those beliefs. But I have conducted a same-sex couples wedding last year. So it seems like it kind of comes down to, like many religions, the interpretation of, right. you know, the people conducting these ceremonies. Right. Um, as a female Correct. priestess... There's not a lot of women, it doesn't seem at least. I've definitely seen women in temples and mandirs and they're helping out. And I think at my wedding, the priest's assistant was a woman. Um, How does, what, like, I guess, like, do you feel like you have certain things that you have to face being a woman in what feels like a mostly male-dominated arena? That's a really good question. The question, the way I would answer it, that if you believe, if your value system is equality, then there is no problem, right? But if you believe that the priest has to be a male, (coughs) excuse me, then obviously I don't have a place in that uh, space, correct? Because there are uh, uh, phone calls that I have received that says, uh, oh, we wanted to do uh, XYZ puja. Can you do it? The moment they hear my uh, voice, they would say, oh, your husband does the puja? You picked up the... I mean, I'm talking on behalf of him as if. So I said, no, I I do the puja. So then said, oh, we'll call you back. Immediately I know... That call is never coming back. Yes. So, and there have been another uh, line of uh, questioning to me is that, oh, are you a Brahmin? And I would say, no, I'm not a Brahmin. And then say, oh, we'll get back to you. 
that coming back never happens. So those are the main two uh, barriers that comes up uh, when somebody talks to me and uh, shows their belief system. But uh, 99% of the time, this doesn't happen. On the contrary, people will say our value systems doesn't match. So we were looking for a priestess, uh, a female priest. Yeah. And uh, so then um, everything is solved. There is no reason to, you know, worry about it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that most of the experiences have been fairly positive. Um, Very positive. Um, and what you mentioned before was about like at the ashrams, people are living together, other things that come up a lot. And this, I think, is less religion and more culture, but again, very blurred lines of, of couples wanting to live together. And obviously, there's the underlying issue of premarital sex that also comes up. Um, where does Hinduism kind of stand in that? Because like you said, at an ashram, everyone is living together. And for me, in this day and age, I prescribed to my children. I have two daughters. If you feel confident that this that is the person you want to marry or you want to explore, I see no... I see some hesitation, but no uh, harm because there is no need to hide the humanity and the desires that come along with being a human. The more you restrict, the harder somebody is going to follow your rules, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not beneficial at least in this day and age, when I have, I mean, it goes for your parents as well. When we all are trying hard to give you opportunities that are mostly available and lucky to be available, then why you want to sort of impede on uh, on that opportunity? Right. So you go and you say, oh, I don't want you to live with that person. I mean, once you live with that person, believe me, there is no difference between uh, being married and just living together. Uh, The only easier part is uh, uh, that if you want to get separated and if it's not working, it's easy. There is there are no fights. Right. You just move out. And uh, start somewhere where you feel comfortable. Yeah. Whereas, <clears throat> but there are times when I have also told my kids that uh, if you move in together, you have to evaluate the seriousness of your relationship. You cannot just move in and say, oh, two days later, I don't want to live together. Right. So the seriousness of that moving in has a significance for me as a person rather than as a religion or uh, Hinduism, that it doesn't come into the picture for me. The only thing, as I said, comes is how sure you are. 
if you're sure and you want to live together by all means yeah and a lot of times you know people will say oh i don't know whether he comes and stays the night with uh, my children or vice versa if the girl comes and stays the night with my son or my uh, you know daughter he comes and stays with my daughter i said all you have to do is visit your daughter and look at her bathroom if there is a toothbrush <laughs> sitting there more than one toothbrush she is staying the night yeah and you know i what she is staying the night right. you know and i think like you said there is this idea <clears throat> i think kind of making our parents understand that they did not raise like children who are going to move in for two days and leave. I think there's so much pressure to fall within the lines of our culture that especially if you're a girl, like I know for me, I didn't even introduce my now husband to my parents until I was like, this is the person because I knew how hard it was going to be. You know, he's not Indian. He was born and raised American. And for it was three and a half years of, you know, basically lying to my parents, which they seem to be quite all right with now that we're married. Um, but just like the idea that we would just show up with anyone, anytime. And, you know, just I feel like our parents have such little faith in our ability to make decisions, even though we are raised with such like strict guidelines that like, even the thought of crossing one of those lines, there was probably months, if not years of thought even put into it. And yet they still right. have such little faith. But I'll tell you what I, I did. I told my uh, both my daughters, I said, if you are seeing someone, right, <clears throat> then uh, by all means, uh, bring him home. Bringing home doesn't matter whether you are not going steady or uh, because you are 20 years old, 25 years old. You don't know probably how uh, how um, a person can be perceived by others. Right. So with, uh, you know, 50 years of uh, my lifetime and her being 25 years of her lifetime, there is a difference in experience that I might see that she might not be able to see it. Yeah. And at least if I bring it up, maybe it will, you know, dawn on her that that is not what I want or that is exactly what I want. Yeah. So that opportunity, and I always tell my kids that at least trust me that I have your best interest at heart. I don't want to break anything. Yeah. If you are happy, I can see both of you are happy. Then uh, I want that happiness for you. Mm -hmm. I don't want to break it. So, but there are times when, uh, you know, you see that uh, the person is uh, uh, not... uh, family oriented yeah, they have different values the values different value system doesn't match and uh, you know doesn't uh, uh, have uh, the you know interaction that uh, uh, your family or others would uh, want them to be because we are a very tight family mm-hmm. and 
And uh, once we get together, we want everyone to participate. We want everyone to laugh, make jokes, you know, come out uh, swinging uh, with, uh, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, jokes for older, uh, you know, family members. When we get together, we get made fun of like nobody's business because we have 50 years of 60 years of lifespan that uh, they have seen growing up, you know, making fun of us. So we want everyone join in and we don't care. We enjoy it that they know us better, you know, as a person. That is how you can make fun. That's the only way you can make fun if you know that person, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and healthy fun, not just, you know, being mean and all that. Yeah. So, and we know ourselves that, uh, you know, we contradict ourselves all the time when we are together. Oh, don't do that. My sister was like, no, 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 just do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that is how I, I tell my kids, I said, just bring them. Do not worry about if that person is right or not. My older daughter, he, she had been seeing this person only for three, mo- three months. She had Within that three months, she had maybe four or five dates. And uh, she said, oh, mom, you are coming to, she was in D.C. at the time. Mom, you are coming to D.C. And uh, I was wondering if you would like to meet someone. I said, Sure. So uh, we all, uh, he came, I brought a bottle of wine. Uh, uh, I made some, um, you know, appetizers and we sat down and uh, chatted. So I think uh, uh, the more you know the other person, the better it is not to hold off and say, no, 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 I don't want to meet. Yeah. Do you feel like, because you definitely come from a different generation than mine and like you said, you have 50 years of life under you. And do you feel like when other people your age who, you know, people like my parents who were extremely different in the way I was raised and their reactions to, you know, me dating or even the thought of it um, are much more conservative or much more, you know, the more typical, I guess, idea of like the, yeah. the South Asian parent. How do you did you how, did you go to school? Me? Yeah, um. I grew up in the US. I was born in India, but I grew up in the US. I went to college here. Um uh. and how do you kind of explain your style of parenting, which is so different than one like my parents raised me with? How do you explain that to your cohort? So my my biggest thing is that uh I will never be able to control my kids like all parents know that right that i cannot say like in india that you are going to live with me you're uh, you know we are going to be in joint family that doesn't happen mm-hmm. so to have that experience of a life uh, on your own we have to give in a little bit at a time so that you gain that experience and Consider and learn from your mistakes so that you are a capable adult of making life's more complicated decisions, right? So if you, if I were to tell her every day that, no, 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 this is the only way, that is the only way, they don't do this, do this, 
they will never have a chance to make those decisions on their own. Mm-hmm. And I would say to my same generation uh, adults that we are impeding their growth of making, you know, healthy decisions rather than, uh, you know, giving them the freedom and the ability to think for themselves. Because uh, I'll tell you, I met a kid at one of the weddings and uh, he says to me, after the wedding, we were at, uh, I was at a reception and uh, he comes up and we sit down and uh, he started chatting with me and said, uh, a lot of times I get called Ranjan auntie. So uh, he says, Ranjan auntie, you know, I am having a tough time finding a girl. Because I, up until 30 years uh, up until I go, I was 30 years old, my parents always said, study, 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 study. Girls will come uh, at, you know, any time. Uh, if you are fully, you know, if you are uh, smart, you have achieved certain things in your life, you are settled, the marriage will come. And he says, I am so petrified of talking to girls that I, the moment I think somebody is, you know, I like her, she is beautiful, she could be, you know, I have no guts to call and ask for a date. So that kind of impediment, if we are going to give to our children, it's, it's, we are just, you know, making them miserable. Yeah. Instead of empowering them that by all means, if you uh, know that, you know, uh, go ahead and call. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the, some of the things, you know, I have to, I have to say that, uh, I keep my children in focus rather than me or the society. Uh, uh and focus is that what would be best for them. Mm-hmm. Because if I were to decide, uh, any of those major decisions, then uh, they have no power. They are not uh, capable of uh, future decisions that are complicated. They will not be able to evaluate their situation and gather information that is critical to them. Yeah. And, you know, on this show, a lot of my listeners, if they message me, I get described as like the, the older sister. I'm the big sister they don't have because a lot of times listening to this show is the first time they've been given permission to do the things that their parents, like you said, you can't do this. You can't go here. You have to do it this way. And I'll be the first one that'll be like, no, you should go on a date. Maybe go on two dates this week. They don't have to be the same person. Like you're capable of making a good decision. I'm not saying like date 20 people at once, but like go like every, or like date for fun, right? Every you're, they're right. 21 years old and they're thinking about like, I'm going to, what if, is this a person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with? I'm like, you've known him for a week. Let's just go. With, like, Not even like, like, you know, you, you go on one date and you feel like, my, what would my parents say? That uh-huh. would be like a ridiculous uh, question to even answer. Right. Exactly. I'm like, let's, let's put the brakes on this, you know, take a step back. But for a yeah. lot of them, it's, they've never had the opportunity to have that thought. Because it's always been like dating is for marriage or there is no dating. There's arranged marriage. And like you said, it has raised somewhat children that feel stunted 
when it comes to yes. development because a lot of boys that I do know that have a hard time dating or girls that complain that the guys they're dating if they date someone South Asian it's like I'm dating a man child like their mom does their laundry and cooks and cleans for them <laughs> and he wants to basically marry his mom and like I don't want to date that and like on this show most of the women are not with South Asian partners and one of the biggest factors of not engaging with men in our community is I, I just felt like I was going backwards I'm like I don't want to be your mom like other cultures and again not across the board but aren't raising men that are waiting for a woman to take care of them the way their mom did right there's a, right. a, lot, of, a lot of struggles there and I, I, and I think that is where uh, the training from parents is important, right? So the training doesn't come uh, overnight or within a week or within a month. It has to be gradual, step-by-step, letting them loose in terms of like uh, giving them uh, enough uh, freedom to see. And uh, I don't want to say that uh, give them full freedom in terms of like uh, learn from your mistakes that uh, mistakes cannot be repaired, right? So uh, if you make a decision uh, of, uh, you know, impulse uh, getting married and you haven't known that person well enough uh, and you wind up finding out, uh, you know, two months later that, oh, my God, what did I get into, right? So those kind of decisions uh, are those kind of mistakes are kind of uh, tough to repair, right? Because then you have to go through court system and you have to go through um, all sorts of gyrations. And if you are, uh, uh, you know, what to do with all that? I will give you my example. I am a mom of two, a single mother. When I had both of them, my older was nine years old, actually eight years old, and the younger one was five years old. I realized that uh, I had married an abuser and uh, I had to make a decision for myself. And I made the decision and uh, went through it uh, and uh, decided that, that that's not for me or my kids. And as I said before, is that my always focus has been my children. What is good for them? If I can answer that question truthfully, And with the options that I may have, it's possible I may not have that many options. But within those options, I should be able to critically decide what's good good for them. Right? So that is the way I think. And that is the, the way I want them to think as well. Because life is not uh, as easy uh, as we want it to be. Mm -hmm. Because we will end up uh, with all sorts of uh, issues that we'll have to fight. And it takes a lot of courage to make those decisions. But like you said, you have to learn from your mistakes in the sense that we give our kids the option to make mistakes, the smaller ones in life that are less monumental. But, you know, I even find myself now because... I was raised in such a zero error zone. There was no making mistakes. There was no getting less than 100 on a test. There was no coming home after 930. (laughs) There was always doing everything correctly. And as an adult, having a really hard time with small mistakes, 
being afraid to take even a minor risk because I can fail. All right. You know, and you know, I've gotten older, we've like worked through that, but realizing like how much this mentality of not letting your kids have some a little bit of free reign to make mistakes and learn through life and not end up with children that become adults that don't know how to face life because like life is hard and it's going to throw things at you no matter how hard you prepare or try to make everything perfect right and i i agree with that and so that is my uh the as i said the philosophy i and the guidance i go by is that what is good for my children those decisions what is good for me and what is good for my kids give yourself that opportunity to uh, make that decision and allow yourself to evaluate what information is out there for you for your children and the family so that is how i i feel so you know with those kind of uh, basic uh, basic understanding I gave an example uh, recently uh, to one of my family members and they were just, we were all talking about LGBTQ community and uh, said, uh, just put yourself in a situation where your kids are LGBTQ. doesn't matter. Are you going to abandon them? If you can truthfully say that, yes, I am going to abandon my kids if they are gay or lesbian or LGBTQ, whatever. Then uh, you can do whatever you want. But if you feel that you love your children and if you feel even in the smallest of the small place in your heart, you feel that you will never be able to abandon them, then the only alternative is to support them, not abandon them. Because that abandonment is going to ruin another two lives. Mm -hmm. So if that is where your belief system is, then, uh, you know, Hinduism says you can deal with your karma in the next life. I don't have to deal with that. You know what I mean? And, you know, so the sad reality of it is that disownment is a topic on this show that comes up quite frequently because it is it happens more often than we want to admit and we've had plenty right. of guests who just over the simple option choice to marry somebody who isn't south asian or just of a different religion right if they're if you're hindu and they're muslim it's like world war three you would think oh and you know Muslim is such a big issue for Hindus. yeah and you know so whether it's religion or the culture very often these parents abandon their children. It is to the curb with them because they are shameful. They are ruined the family. You are a dishonor to this whole community. And sadly, you are now leaving children abandoned and ruining lives of multiple people. And what what do we say to them? There is nothing to be said except for, as I said, you know, you deal with your karma. In the next life, you are abandoning your children and you are abandoning uh, something that you have given birth to. Yeah. Something you have created. And what do we tell their children who are now living with it? Right. No, and I think I feel sad and sorry 
Um, I have an example for that. The example is that uh, I am going to be conducting a wedding ceremony for a Hindu and a Muslim uh, couple. They are going to have a Muslim ceremony and a separate Hindu ceremony. The girl is Hindu and uh, the groom is uh, Muslim. But they are of... uh, um, a faith where they are not that strict, you know, and they are every freedom that you can imagine has been granted. You know the Aga Khan family? No, I don't. Uh, so Aga Khan family is a there is a sect uh, of or a branch of Muslim Islam that is headed by Aga Khan, who is. Um, who used to be on, uh, you know, United Nations uh, Human Rights uh, Council and all that um, in the earlier times. And I have known a lot of uh, Muslims who have been the followers of Aga Khan at that particular type of Islam, which is very, very, you know, freedom-giving than... Uh, other uh, Islamic faith. Uh, So the point was that her parents said they will not come to the wedding and they will not attend her wedding. Uh, I have had, when I was growing up in India, I, my friend uh, married uh, untouchable in India, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Harijan yeah. and uh, you know lower caste. So and we studied together. Uh, we were doing PhD together, and uh, she says, uh, "Ranjan, I'm going to get married to uh, this person because I had known him for a long time. He he is a nice person, and he said, I'm going to get married. My brother is not going to come, and I think her fa- parents were not uh, alive or something." And uh, so I said, uh, so it's just the two of you? And she says, mostly, yes. Can I ask you to do me a favor and have your brother stand in for my parents? So I asked my brother, and my brother said, sure. He stood in for her parents and uh, attended the wedding. So I I feel that we as children, my parents were not uh, as, uh, as, I don't want to say strict. My father was very strict, but my mother was not uh, that strict. So my, my mother said, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. My father probably didn't know that he was going. <laughs> <laughs> so... But uh, that is the uh, that is how it works, you know. And so I asked her that uh, we have done certain things, you know, in my lifetime that uh, my brother has attended a wedding of a person who was, you know, dis- disowned by her family, and uh, we stood in for her, for them. And so he said, she says, no, no, no. I have a few, you know, like chachis yeah. and. Uh, uh, who probably will be sta- will stand in for me? 
I said, that's fine. But if you need something, uh, don't hesitate. You know, we are going to be uh, there for at least two days. Uh, and you can ask. Yeah. If you need help. Um, found family is a big concept around here of the people who will become your family, even though they're not blood related to right. you. And so stand-ins in weddings are common, not just for those who may have been disowned, but also, you know, death happens. Because is outside of the uh, United States, right. they can't come. You know, there are a lot of reasons why we have stand-in family. Yeah. And so it's nice to know that that is an option, no matter what the reason is for couples who might be right. seeking your services. Um, my last question I ask all of my guests is if there's a piece of advice or some words of wisdom you would like to leave with our listeners, what would it be? Trust your instincts. That's it. Three words. Trust your gut feeling or trust your instincts. Do not, uh, you know, get in the middle of uh, your strong intentions or strong feelings that that is the right thing for me, that this is the uh, right path for me. And so it's important. Trust your instincts. Three words. Amazing. Love that. Um, obviously, you provide religious ceremonies and services. Where can people find you online and where can they find your services? So I have a website that says thenewenglandpriest.com. I have Instagram account as you found me on Instagram. It's the New England Priest. And the same uh, uh, is on Facebook, the New England Priest. Perfect. All of that will be linked in the show notes if you guys want to access that. Thank you so much for being a guest. It has been a pleasure. It is my pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Make sure if you enjoyed this episode, you leave us a review on iTunes. You can find the show on all major streaming platforms. You can find me on Instagram at Disha.Mazeppa. You can shop my Etsy shop, Disha Mazeppa Designs. Find out everything you want to know about this show at DishaMazeppa.com. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest, you can email podcast at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. This podcast is hosted and produced by Disha Mystery Mazeppa. Music for the show was created by Crexwell. Mm-hmm.